0: Well good morning Springbrook. Welcome in for worship. We are so delighted to be with you today. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bethany. I'm the worship director here and we're just excited about what the Lord is going to do in our time together. We're expectant of the Spirit to be moving in mighty ways in us and through us and so we are glad to have you joining us for this time of worship together. If you're joining us online at our nine o'clock service, we have Online hosts who are available for you all throughout the service. So please participate as you feel led, ask questions, and if you want to go into a one on one private chat with one of our hosts, just use that request prayer button over on the right hand side, and they would love to pray with you. We want you to feel cared for and connected to what God's doing here in this community, no matter where you are, what you're walking through today. Well, I'd love to invite you to stand as you are able in body or in spirit, for a call to worship, which today comes from Matthew chapter 6. And it's in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his followers and disciples, and he teaches them how to pray. And he says this, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need from evil. Amen. So let's continue. Let's worship together. Let's sing and pray these very words that Jesus taught us to pray. Let's lift our voices this morning. Let's sing this out together. Father, let your kingdom come.
1: Father, let your will be on earth as in heaven Right here in my heart Father let your kingdom grow.
0: Amen. Well, our scripture reading for today comes from Second Samuel chapter 7, where it is recorded that the prophet Nathan spoke this promise to King David. These are the words of the Lord. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This was nearly a thousand years before Jesus would be born, fully man and fully God, bringing his kingdom to bear this promise was made to his ancestor, King David, that one from David's line would one day be seated on a throne to rule forever. So we're going to continue in worship, lifting up our voices to the one who always has been and always will be seated on the throne and reigning over all, the Ancient of David. Let's come before the Lord together in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you don't have to show us who you are. You didn't have to reveal yourself to us. You didn't have to give us your word. You didn't have to give us each other. You didn't have to give us the beauty of creation, all these ways that we're able to see, glimpses of who you are, but you have chosen to reveal yourself to your children as the ancient of days, the king of all kings. You are so far above what we can possibly get our human understanding around. We can't wrap our minds around you. And thank goodness that we have a God that we cannot fathom because you are so great and your love is so deep. And your glory and your holiness are so perfect and pure that we can't possibly understand it. But we thank you for reaching out to us, for inviting us to yourself, to know you. For revealing who you are in the person of Jesus, in the sending of your Holy Spirit, so that we can stand before the throne of grace today with boldness. Father, I lift up each person in this room, whatever they've carried in, those who are worshiping online, with whatever they're facing at home. Holy Spirit, you know us all. You know us well. You know what we need to surrender to you right now in this moment. You know what we need to let go of so that we can be open and prepared to hear your word today. So will you give us the courage and the faith to lay some things down at your feet right now? Whatever it is, whether it's fear or anxiety, a sense of shame, help us to lay it down at your feet. We don't have to deny that we're hurting. We can bring it to you, and we can lay it down. Will you prepare us, Holy Spirit? You have something in your word. Your word does not return void. It is made to transform us, to show us more of you. Will you help us to receive it today with open hearts and open minds that we might not leave here the same? You are too good. Your word is too beautiful for us to miss out on it today. Help us to be aware of you and have hearts that are attentive to you. We pray all of these things and offer all of this to you in the matchless name. Christ Jesus, our King, who is seated above on the throne. It's in his name that we pray, amen. And you may be seated.
2: Good morning, and welcome to Springbrook. My name is Brian Ford. I have the privilege of serving here as an elder, and I want to be one of the first to welcome you to Springbrook. So if you're online, um, please drop us a chat and let us know that you're there and fill out the connection card. If you're here, which I see you, hi, um, fill out the connection card, and we would love to hear from you. Um, Springbrook is a church of upfront prayer and just a, a church of prayer in general. So between services, we'll have upfront prayer, And if you need prayer for any reason or anything, or you just want encouragement, please join us between services for Upfront Prayer. Uh, Next, the Judson University Choir, uh, who travels all over the country, Europe, Asia, all over the place. They actually will be here November 6th. So if you are interested in um, coming to support that choir, please go to our website or our app and learn about the Judson Choir and this event. Um, And lastly... October is Pastor Appreciation Month. So each week we've been talking about all of our pastors, and today I have the privilege of talking about Pastor Matt Johnson. And so Matt, who is our pastor of discipleship and family life, or as Matt likes to say, from birth to death, um, is really, he has a heart for teaching people how to understand the Bible. And So Matt has been married to Jess for 11 years, and they have served at Springbrook for six and a half years. Um, they have two children, uh, Lucy, who's three, and Levi, who is one. Um, Matt enjoys cooking. Oh, well, I don't know how good a cookie he is, but he enjoys cooking, uh, and he's a decent basketball player as well. I get, to t- I get a chance to play with him often. Um, additionally, um, again, Matt has a, a big heart for wanting to help people understand the Bible, and he's actually working on his doctoral degree in practical theology. So I encourage you to be in prayer about how we can support Matt and support Jess and show them how much we appreciate them in this Pastor Appreciation Month. And so thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of your service.
3: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I used to look like that, um, that past picture. This morning, everyone said, Matt, you need to update your picture on the website. And I was like, why? And um, I have children, as Brian told you, but I giggled when I saw that because I was like, oh, that's, that's like early Matt and Jess life. So, uh, oh, um, we're not doing communion right now. You might, if you're on, if you're at home, you don't even know this yet, but you should grab communion elements, because at the end of the sermon today, we're going to do communion. Um, But we're working backwards today. Um, Our tech people are not messing up right now. Um, We're starting from the end, and we're working backwards, and we're doing it on purpose. We're in our second week of our series through the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon, it's called Above, and today... I want to leave you with the scripture as best as I can. Usually when preaching a sermon, um, you want to start with the passage and you want to unpack the passage and you want to help people see what the passage meant in its original time. And then you want to, in the middle of the sermon, start to say, if it meant this and we live here, here's kind of how we can start to think about it. And then you want to end with application. But today, I don't really care if you apply this. I mean, I do. I do. Oh, shoot. I, I do care if you apply this. But what I care a lot more about is that this captures you. That today, when we read through the Scripture, we're going to land on. That you don't just say, okay, I already know that. And I want to tell you, this has been a really weird week for me, because in everything I'm about to preach on, I feel really good preaching on the truth of it. But this morning and just the last few days as I've reflected on what I'm communicating... I know very well that I can say out loud that I believe this in a, I I say I believe it, but I can think of many times in the last seven days where what I'm about to say is less true in my life than I wish it was. We talked, and actually, if you've got a Bible, if you could open to Colossians 1, and while you do that, I'm going to remind you that last week we talked about the question in Colossians of can we actually walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, can we live in such a way that it is fully pleasing to him? And we need to be able to answer yes to that, even as we know in our own strength, we will never measure up to that standard. But if we don't think that's possible, we are diminishing the message of the gospel. And so we need to recognize the truth of it, even as we know we will never measure up on our own. And praise the Lord for the work that Christ has done, the gospel message that we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in, and we're going to see what happens this morning. So Colossians 1, 13 through 23, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred or made us citizens in the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God, we thank you that the only place we deserved was the domain of darkness. We, humanity, rebelled against you, and each generation has done so. Each person that here's this every person who has ever breathed outside of your son, all of us who were made in your image because of sin were a part of a domain of darkness. We were hostile to you. We were alienated from you. We were evil in our deeds. And yet, because of you and your work, we were delivered and made citizens in your kingdom, the kingdom of your beloved son. We thank you that he who is fully your image who all things were created through and for. We thank you that Jesus, your Son, who held all of creation and holds all of creation together, reconciled us through the blood of the cross that we might be able to stand before you. We thank you that this is true, and we pray today, I pray as I know I am an imperfect vessel as I preach today, and we pray for each and every one of us that we would not leave today thinking of ourselves, and of our own justification, but we would recognize what you have done, and we would recognize the throne upon which your Son, Jesus, sits. We pray you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the message of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start right now at the end of the passage, and I know some of you might say this is backwards thinking. I thought that would go over well, and I don't know why. We're starting at the end today, and we're going to work our way forward. Remember as we read this that the starting point of the passage this week, Colossians 1, 13, and 14, is about how we were in the domain of darkness, and we've become citizens in the kingdom of the beloved Son, Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom come we were just singing about, and after... After Paul gives this beautiful poetic speech of who Jesus is that we're going to end on, he says, and you, for the, his audience, the Colossians, who were Gentiles, he says to them, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, this language, if there's a kingdom of heaven, we also, all humans, were once alienated and hostile in mind, we cannot miss this. The gospel message applies to each and every person the same way, and the starting point of the gospel is that we were enemies of it. Some of you sitting here are enemies of Jesus, and that's hard to hear, but if we don't hear it, we're in more trouble than if we pretend like it's not true. Because the picture of the gospel begins with humanity created in God's image, set on the earth to rule on God's behalf, rejecting God's rule by sinning. And what is sin? Sin is when we redefine good and evil on our own terms. We have a creator who created us, who made us, that we might follow and rule on his behalf this creation. And when we were given the opportunity to rule, and the ability to rule by him when he created us, we chose a different good and evil, which is absolutely evil. Because anything that is not inside of his created order moves us away from him. And so we just need to recognize this is true. This may be where you're at today. And I have good news for you that you don't need to stay here. But if the Bible is true, this is true of every human, whether they acknowledge it or not. And that means if we're alienated and hostile in mind, we can only do evil. Because as we talked about last week, we're not a head and a heart. We're not these all these different things. We are a person and all that we're doing. If it, we, our actions show our beliefs. Our beliefs are shown by our actions. And so if we are alienated and hostile in mind, we cannot hope to do good. And so we need to be wholly transformed. But the good news is that he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, I love this language of in order to present. In the Greek, it is one word there, and that one word brings with it a picture of standing before judgment. And I don't know about you. I was talking. My parents are here today, so if I say anything wrong, it's their fault. Um, but uh, my my parents are here, and we were talking and talking about the picture of being able to stand before Jesus on judgment, and how impossible that sounds, and how we're gonna want to bow. But he's created us in such a way that if we're bowing out of love and joy, it's different than the idea that we couldn't stand on our own in the first place. Because no, we can't stand on our own, but we can stand because of what he does through us and in us. And so the gospel doesn't, the God, oh man, we're not going to talk about that yet because it's coming. I don't want to diminish what's coming. But We are to stand holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We're to walk in a manner worthy, fully pleasing to him. And it's for the future, but it's for right now. And look at this, because we talked about this last week too. And if you weren't here last week... You're hearing it now. Um, One of the most challenging things in modern Christianity is anytime we talk about definitions of salvation or what salvation looks like, people say, well, you say a prayer, once saved, always saved. And the problem is not once saved, always saved. The problem is that our definition of salvation does not match a picture of scripture. Salvation in scripture involves bearing fruit. Your fruit bearing is not how you get saved i'm not saved by the works i do but if christ never works in me and through me how can i say i'm saved it's not a thing i say it's a way of living that the outpouring of the belief i have in christ and the work he's done in me will show up in fruit and here if indeed you continue in the faith you can't just erase this you can't say well i said a prayer i'm good You have to see that there's an if clause tied to, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, if, if. I want you to hear there is assurance of salvation in Scripture, but that assurance is tied to bearing fruit and seeing the Holy Spirit at work in our life. It's not tied to words I say. It's not tied to words you say. It's tied to the work of the Spirit in us. If we minimize that, we are not talking about the gospel anymore. He goes on to say, "Established and steadfast." I, if indeed you continue in the faith, how do you continue in the faith? Established and steadfast. And this word, "established," in your ESV Bibles, if that's what you've got, it says "stable." And "stable" is such a bleh word because the actual word is either a construction, foundation-type word. It's putting a foundation down, or it's rooted. It's the idea of being deeply set in something. It's not the idea of, oh, I'm just able to stand here. It's the idea of actually being built into something. Established and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And the shifting language ties into this. We're going to look at this over and over because the underlying theme of the whole book of Colossians is that if Jesus is king then what does it look like to stand in that truth wherever we are in every moment of our lives, established and steadfast? The not shifting, I will tell you as I was prepping this sermon, this was just a crazy week for me and I feel just out of it. And in feeling out of it in so many things, the thing I kept thinking about yesterday and this morning whenever I had just moments to think was the fact that this whole week I've shifted from the idea that Jesus is king and I don't think about it, and then I come back to it and say, man, I should have been thinking about it, and then I feel guilty that I'm not thinking about it, and then I say, Lord, forgive me, but I don't think about, oh, you're king right now, and let's think about where we're headed. I just think in those moments about the ways, and I avoid standing firm on what should be firm, and that's what we do, and, and so we're, we're going to talk about this, and we'll get to Paul more next week, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Um, next week, we're going to talk about his story a bit, and I think it's going to be very exciting, but right now, we need to talk about application, because I said we're starting with the application. And this is going to be weird for me. Um, I've already done this once, and I didn't like it. Um, there's 168 hours in a week. All of us have 168 hours in a week. Oh, don't take a picture of that, Marty. These are my hours. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't, I hope you can't. Re- I'm sorry, Marty. I'm <laughs> Okay, okay, I feel goofy there, but um, every week, I have 168 hours, and if you're in a small group, this is the application for this week in your small group. We're starting with this today, you're going to spend time on this in your small group, but every week, I sleep about seven hours a night. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but I try and get about seven hours of sleep, and so that's here, and that's here, so like a, not quite a third of my week is sleep, I work about 50 hours. Now, I'm a pastor here, and I say this because some people don't realize this. This is my job. My office is here. I work here. So I included, for me, church in this because it's weird that, you know, like I'm, I'm getting paid to be here, but I also like being here. It's all these different things, But, but I work about 50 hours a week. I sleep 49 hours a week. Um, I try and be real intentional about there are certain times each day or most days, and on weekends we have like a Sabbath day where I try and really focus on family, about 25 hours a week. Um, I'm, a, I'm working a doctoral degree in practical theology. That takes about 15 hours a week still. Um, and then I'm uh, I, entertainment, streaming things, watching things, playing games, doing different things, about 15 hours a week. Um, I read random books about seven hours a week, and I do devotionals about seven hours a week. Um, and as I say all this, I want to tell you, I, I feel like weird because I want to be like, well, actually, I do devotions like 30 hours a week because I want to f- sound really holy. But the problem is, is that we, like, when I, when I do this and when I'm honest about it, this, this is what life kind of looks like. This isn't perfectly re- representative of every week of my life, but it's, it's pretty close. Um... And inside of this picture is a question. And the question isn't, do I do enough devotions? Do I go to church enough? The question isn't, how spiritual am I? I When it says entertainment, are those only Christian movies or Hallmark movies? Um, I don't watch either of those. But um, uh, it's not about that. The question is, do I make Jesus king of every single dot? or every single, single square on here. The question is not, am I reading Christian books? The question is, in what I'm reading, and what I'm engaging with, am I, am I, in my head, seeing Jesus as king in that moment? Because I don't have to read an explicitly Christian book to point to Christ, but there are things I can read that are going to make it very hard for me to think about the fact that Christ is king in that moment. For entertainment, um, this is my favorite example. Jess and I loved the television show, Alone!, where ten people are put into extreme wilderness settings with, like, ten supplies, all on their own, and then they get, a, like, a giant case of a camera, and they make, like, they make, like, little diaries of their life, and they try and live in the wilderness as long as they can, going into a winter. It's the most fascinating show in the world. I wholeheartedly believe that most of the time I watch that show, I am seeing Jesus as King, because the show focuses on the beauty of nature and creation, and the fact that man was not meant to live alone. And I love the show, and it makes me think about the glory and majesty of God. They do all this beautiful B-roll. The the point of this is there are things I can watch that are not just actively saying, yay, Christian, that are still good. But there are also other things I watch that are just nonsense that probably shouldn't be on here. And the question is not, am I only going to watch the right thing? The question is, am I going to live in such a way that every one of these dots Or squares, I keep saying dots, I hope you're okay with that, but every one of these squares is tied to the idea that Jesus Christ is king. Because he's not just king when I'm here, he's not just king when I'm at small groups or when I open my Bible, he is king of every moment. He is king when me and Lucy are walking through Costco doing samples, he is king when me and Jess are stressed out because our children won't fall asleep, or they fall asleep pretty well, but when we're having a bad day, he's king of good days. He's, he's king of every moment. The question is, do I see him as such? And, and the point of this activity, because you're going to do this, the point of this in talking about this is not for all of us to start saying, guys, I did 49 hours of devotions this week. I got fired from my job, but I read a lot of Bible. The goal of this is to start thinking about there are places in my life where, if I am honest, Jesus is not king. One of them that keeps coming to mind in the last week as I was prepping this sermon, I was thinking, well, I don't want to talk about this. But it's very clear. So I I usually read before I go to bed. And I've recently started, when I wake up, um, we have an older home and it's creaky and it wakes up our son if I walk around. So I just sit in bed, putzing around. I've probably even used this illustration before because this is always the battle for me. I like just sitting, checking scores on ESPN. I like reading or keep reading whatever I was reading. And all of a sudden, I've been up an hour just doing my own thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, now i got to go read my devotion. And then I read my devotion on the same phone I did all the other stuff with. It's insane that I don't start focused on Christ and start my day focused there. And it's a little thing But I feel very convicted about it. You may say, well, in the morning, I don't retain anything, but I don't know what you're going to say. I don't care what you're going to say. What matters is what are you going to say about your time? And then in our small groups, we're going to start talking about where are the spaces where I don't see Jesus as king and what would it look like? to make him king in those spaces. For some of you, I work at a church, so Jesus better be king most of the time. He's not always king here. I do my best. He is always king, but I forget that. I lose sight of that. But for some of you, you may say, I don't know how Jesus could be king of my time at work. I don't know how I could focus on that. And I hope that this series will start helping you think of that. Our church did a survey a while back where we were talking, or a while back, a couple months ago, where we were talking about struggles we have And a lot of people talked about seeing God at work outside of the church is a challenge they have. And I hope that through this series, we start seeing God at work everywhere we go. Because when we think we can confine Jesus to these four walls, we've missed the point of the gospel. So you're going to do this. And you're going to, hopefully you're in a small group and you're going to do this. And you're going to think about how you spend your time. Not from the standpoint of I need to be more spiritual with my time, but the standpoint of I need to refocus my time on Christ. And as we do this, um, I'm really excited. We've got someone here named Edie, who, she, a while back, um, through her small group, she writes, she became a member recently, got baptized, um, and she writes these beautiful short stories or these beautiful devotional thoughts. um, And her small group, they gave me these and said, Matt, you need to see these. And I've had these a while. Thank you, Edie. And um, when I was prepping this sermon... Um, And prepping this back in like January when we were starting to think about where we were headed in Colossians, I I was thinking about these and then I forgot about them and that's what I do. And then um, recently we were talking, she emailed me, we were emailing back and forth and I said, can I use it? And this was the week as we talk about our hours. um, Edie wrote this, um, time on earth is a commodity with great monetary value. It can be measured, calculated, qualified and quantified. Hours, minutes, even seconds on the clock, days on the calendar, bought, sold, bartered, invested, gambled, gifted, and free. We spend, save, and lose it. Time can be scheduled, suspended, sustained, or spared, shared, squandered, or stolen. It can be estimated, exchanged, and extended. Contracted time can be recorded, reclaimed, and resumed. Yet each human being has a finite amount of time, a treasure to be cherished, portioned with, careful, or portioned with care and invested wisely. It occurs to me that the wisest investment of time has nothing to do with money, but begins with practicing stillness. The Bible tells us to be still for our creator desires to make himself clearly known. Even in a crowded room or in the midst of commotion, I frequently escape in silent prayer where I am strengthened and refreshed, a respite from the pressures of life, a few precious moments with my God, an investment in kingdom come. Father God, I pray thank you for this day and thank you for your way. Thank you for family, friends, and health. Thank you for listening to me, for being there when I need you most. Thank you for this most precious moment alone with you. Grant that I would discern your will for my life and that I would always be a good steward of your gift of time. Let me not squander it, but use each moment in ways that glorify you, Lord. I love that. I love that. And why I love that is because that's exactly what we need to do. In those moments where I feel farthest from the Lord, he's not far away but will I be still, as Edie says, and will I just recognize him? Will I pray? Will I give that moment to him? And you may have a chaotic job where you're always on your feet, and it may be just in that moment of just setting and setting your mind on him so that the rest of the day you can just renew your focus on him. And so I hope you will take that to heart. As we come back to the passage, there's one last thing we need to talk about. We need to talk about the word, the gospel. It's words, but underneath it is a single Greek word, evangelion, or eu But um, the word gospel, when we talk about the word gospel in modern English, I'm going to make a bet here, based on a lot of experience working with all of you and working in churches, when we talk about the word gospel, the thing we think about is the cross and the forgiveness of sins it's not that. It's not that at all. Um, That's part of it. Don't get me wrong, but when we settle on the gospel, as Jesus died on the cross and my sins were forgiven, we are not at all talking about the picture of the gospel. In fact, the word gospel does not originate in the Bible. The word gospel in that day, if we remember the letter to the Colossians and most of the letters that Paul wrote, and most of the times we see the word gospel show up, it's usually tied to, or often very tied to, a Gentile audience. And a Gentile audience means a non-Jewish audience, and it means for all intents and purposes in our Bible times, an audience that was under the rule of the Roman Empire and was most likely Greek, and an audience that most likely lived in Roman values, when we start to understand that, the word gospel takes on a new meaning. Because before Jesus was born, like 30 years, the, there's this thing called the Pax Romana. Um, it's not a type of cheese. It's, uh, the Pax Romana is the peace of Rome that extended for like 300 years. And when that peace started, when the, and, and how did that peace come to pass? we got to talk about this. What the Romans did is they said, follow us and what we say. And people said no, and then the Romans conquered them, and then they said, good news, you're part of our peace. And any time people tried to rise up against them, they crushed them, and then they announced good news. There's peace again. But they did it through violence and through coercion. They did it through force. But when one of the Caesars before Jesus, after he had done this great thing and tied to the birth of another Caesar and tied to all of these different things, there was a proclamation made by the Roman Empire that was good news. And when they say good news, they were saying the gospel in this moment, the good news in this moment, same exact word. The good news is that through divine providence, this Augustus Caesar was born and he has lived and he has defeated all of the enemies, and he has brought salvation to mankind. And through him we will have everlasting peace. This was a decree in Rome. This was a decree in the Roman Empire. When you hear it, does it sound an awful lot like the Christian message, except it's about a Roman conqueror? Yeah, It's the same exact message. If we had like years, we could spend time reading through all these different documents where you start to see how what Paul was writing, what the Jews were saying, what Jesus himself was saying was the most inflammatory thing that could be said in that day. When the Gentiles became Christians, they were announcing, I renounce my citizenship to Rome. I renounce my citizenship to the citizenship of Caesar, of Augustus, of all of these Roman empires, and I'm moving to something new. And every time people announced that they were no longer going to follow a Roman emperor, they were crushed like bugs. And so when we hear the word gospel in the Bible, we need to remember that it was fighting words against the Roman Empire. When somebody said they were going to follow Jesus and the gospel about Jesus, they were announcing there is a kingdom greater than Rome. They weren't announcing my sins are forgiven and when I die, I get to go to heaven. They were announcing what Bethany read in Second Samuel, where there would be a king from the line of David who would sit on a throne and reign forever. She, he was, God was announcing through David, through Nathan the prophet, God was announcing through these stories that one would come that Rome could not overcome. And who killed Jesus? The Jews wanted him crucified, but it was the Roman authorities using a torturous device, a cross, in order to give him a humiliating death and to mock him as the king of the Jews. The ultimate power that Rome had over each and every human was that if any human rose up in a way that went against the Roman Empire, they could squash them. They could defeat them. There was nothing anyone could do. In fact, in about 67 to 72 AD, somewhere in there, man, it's, it's in my head, but I'm not going to say it right, the Jews kept rising up against the Romans, and eventually the temple was destroyed. Because the Jews kept saying, we don't want Roman rule. And the Romans finally said, great, we won't rule you anymore, we'll destroy you. The Roman Empire ruled with violence and force and their gospel was good news. Because we overpower you, there's peace. The gospel message is not just the message of the forgiveness of sins. That's part of it. The good news of the gospel is the God who is above each and everything that we experience in our lives reigns. There's not a kingdom that will arise and squash him like a bug. In his death... Uh, and we're going to take communion in a minute. In, in the death of Christ, what we cannot miss is the fact that the Roman Empire and the powers of the world exercised the most force they could ever exercise over a human. And three days later, it turned out it wasn't enough. The, the message of the gospel, the reason we do things like communion, the reason we follow Jesus is not because he was killed by Roman instruments. At the hands of the Romans and the Jews. The reason we follow Jesus is because that death wasn't the end. He didn't just forgive our sins and say someday you'll get to be in heaven and you won't sin anymore. He said, I'm a part of, I'm bringing a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. You are joining this new kingdom now. And the good news of the gospel is that we are a part of a kingdom that already has no end even as it doesn't feel like it very often. Being a Christian, there's a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm not going to give you the quote because it's like four paragraphs. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's the most phenomenal quote. And if you're really nerdy and want to learn more about it, come talk to me after. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a Lutheran theologian in Germany who was a part of this whole story where, he, he was there during the rain, rise of the Nazis. He left to go to New York. He lived in New York a while and felt convicted that my people are in Germany and I need to go back and speak truth. I need to be against what is happening there. He went back. Eventually, he was involved in an assassination plot against Hitler, and he died in a concentration camp. But he is he's just one of those guys. Just, he's amazing. But, but he has a quote in a book where he talks about the Christian worldview. And again, I'm paraphrasing and dumbing this down because it's how I understand it, but I want to just make sure he gets credit. But the the quote at its core, there is only one reality, and it is the reality in which God is over it and which Christ reigns. When we become Christians, we think in our heads when we become Christians, I made Jesus Lord of my life but come on, we didn't do that. We don't don't have agency to make Jesus anything in our lives. When we become a Christian, all that changes because of the work on the cross and the resurrection, because of the ascension, because God sent the Holy Spirit, becoming a Christian is finally having eyes that see the world as it already is, because Christ already reigns. It is so hard to see that in the noise of this world, in the struggles we face, in, our, in just all of the different realities that we think are important, our, our bosses, our finances, our, our relationships, all of these things compete. And, and in, in, in the day of the Colossians, when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote to a people who everything they did was under the shadow of an emperor. In our modern setting, there's not a shadow of an emperor. In our modern setting, we all sit on our own thrones. Um, I deleted like 20 slides this morning. But the summary of the 20 slides that I'm going to say in a sentence is in a modern Western United States worldview, and if you're alive and breathing, this is your worldview to some degree or another. We are all our own king. There's no way around this. And if you don't think this applies to you the reason you can think this doesn't apply to you is because you're individualized. And I say that jokingly, but seriously. We live in a world where each of us is our own king. And because of that, we engage with other people and interact with other people in such a way where we seek out people who will affirm us in who we say we are. We, we live in a performance-driven world where we don't want to be judged. We want people to tell us, you're already what you're supposed to be. We come to our institutions. We, we come to schools. I, I, I can give like a million stories. I'm not going to, but, but we come into schools and institutions expecting them to affirm that we're already doing something. If a child is getting bad grades, it is not uncommon for teachers to hear from parents, why aren't you doing a better job teaching my child than for the parents to say, my child needs to work on this. I say this jokingly, but also seriously. I have enough experience in that world to say people expect to be affirmed in who they are. In the church, one of the most challenging things about being a pastor is that sometimes it feels like I wish I could speak a little further, and I want to be bold, but I don't want to leave people behind. But I want to figure out that balance, and I want to pray and ask God that he would give me wisdom in what to say. But I know that there are so many times that I interact with people who, when they come to church, what they are hoping to hear on a Sunday morning is what they already believe, so that they can say, yes, I'm already this. And none of us look enough like Christ to think that. We should be coming to church hoping for transformation. We should be coming here and into this body and into this community hoping that we are being shaped to look more and more like Jesus, to live in such a way that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And to do that, we need to transform But instead, we seek self-justification, we perform, we live in a way that we feel validated in rather than allowing God to work in our lives. And this is Western views, and the United States is unique in how insanely individualized we are. And so we live in this world where we're, we're like the book of Judges, where there was no king, each man did what was right in his own eyes. That's like just the United States right now. Um, and, and inside and outside the church. We don't have time for that, but I will tell you, the church is not doing a whole lot better there overall, and we need to recognize that, and we need to live in patterns of repentance to the fact that we sit on our own throne. And I say this as someone who spent a lot of time this week sitting on my own throne and recognizing over and over, man, I need to stop doing this, and then catching myself five minutes later doing the same thing. We don't do this on our own. We need to be transformed because if we're not going to step that way, we're not ever going to be the people we have been called to be in Christ. Speaking of Christ, we are going to end talking about him because I know I should not be seated on a throne, but I seat myself there sometimes. But when I come to this passage, this is Colossians 1:15 through 20. I know it's really small font, but I wanted it all on one page. When I come to this passage, I cannot escape from the reality of who he is. And when I come back to that and I seek that out humbly, hopefully I take my mind off the things that I want to do and set my mind on him who is above. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the picture of Christ that Paul is going to anchor the entire book of Colossians on, and we cannot lose sight of everything being said here. The first thing we need to know that in our modern English is just not there. The word firstborn, we think, oh yeah, he's God's firstborn son. He's God's only son. No, the word firstborn in Greek can mean that, but it can also mean he's above all of that. He's the one. He's unique in his greatness. Firstborn in this category does not mean anything other than that. This is not about birth order because we see elsewhere in scripture and even in Colossians that there was not a time when Jesus did not exist. So it's not he's firstborn, it's he always was above Above with primacy creation. He was over all of creation. And the word preeminent means supreme over. It means matchless. It means above. It brings with it the idea of an authority all to himself. He is preeminent. As we talk about this passage, the other thing, we talked about this last week, the word all. Paul uses the word all in Colossians 1, 1 through 20, or 1 through 20. 1 one through 23, so many times to draw our attention, not in exaggeration, but in reality, the fact that there is nothing mentioned in created order that is outside the rule of Christ. And this should hit us over the head over and over. He's the firstborn of all creation, so he's above all creation. Not only is he above it, for by him all things were created. He created it. So he's not tied to it. All things in Greek is one word. That's why it's both there. But all things were created by him in heaven and on earth. So that heaven and earth, that language is the spiritual language. Like there's angels, there's demons, there's this whole reality that we can't see. He created all of it and earth, everything we can see. There is not anything in the scope of existence that is outside of what Jesus created. And not just that, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, for the people that Paul is writing to, this audience would have seen thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities as the local rulers, the Roman rulers, the, the, all the people that were over them, all of the different things. And Paul is saying none of it is above him. All things were created through him and for him. Not only did he create everything, but everything was created for him. He didn't just create it and say, let's see what happened. It was created for him. There's a great line, um, why were we created? For God's glory and man's good. It was that we might experience God in his glory and give him glory that he already deserves and has. Um, But the, the idea here is we were created for him. On top of that, he is before all things. There's not a thing that he is not before. There is not a scope or boundary to Christ that fits into any category we have. And in him, all things hold together. I love that line, all things hold together. Because the implication of it that I go to immediately, we're going to take communion in a minute. But when Jesus sat in the garden and he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It was by his power that the very creation he had stepped into held together. And it just staggers me. He is the head of the body, the church. That means not the elders, not the pastors, not anyone else in the church, not anything. Nothing is above him. And we know that, but it is just every church that follows and claims Christ and truly bears fruit. He is the head of that church. He established it. He is the head of it. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This idea of firstborn from the dead, we live in a broken creation because of sin. And yet Jesus, with his death and resurrection, his ascension and the ascending of the Spirit, there's a clear implication that if we are aware of it, it is staggering. Because it is not just that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be in heaven someday, but when we look at the end of Scripture, we see a picture at the end of Scripture, not just not just of humans in heaven, but of a new creation, a new earth that is fully perfect without sin that is living. It's all creation, the whole universe, and yet he is the beginning of what will be the firstborn from the dead. We who are Christians are joining into this work. We're first fruits. We're the beginning of the work that Christ is going to do for all time, and we get to be a part of that. We will talk about this later as we talk about putting on our new self- and he is all of these things that in everything he might be preeminent. That line, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's firstborn over the old creation. He's firstborn over the new creation. He is above all. There is not a new category of which he will not be above. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, now we see something that is just beyond staggering. He who is the image of the invisible God, all the fullness of God Entered. When he entered creation, we cannot even fathom what it meant outside of praise the Lord. We get to celebrate it and we get to be a part of his kingdom, but we cannot even fathom the fact that God humbled himself into that babe, that we would have a way back to him, that there would be a way through that. God was pleased to do this. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, to make peace with all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When we read this passage, this is not the passage of a guy who died so we could go to heaven. That is a part of it, but this is the passage of a king who was perfect and above who held everything together and who saw the fallenness of creation and said, I will make a way for that creation to be made new in me. We can have peace with God and be part of his kingdom here and now in a world that is described in Colossians as the domain of darkness because of the work of Christ. It is not by anything I do. It is not by anything you do. We do not have such depth of mind that we think about Jesus a long time and all in our own power we say, oh, I guess I'll follow him right now. Instead, the work of Christ, the work of God, it's a mystery, but through what he has done, through the Holy Spirit, through the testimony of the church, we are invited to understand this truth to the best of our human ability and to celebrate and live in it to step off of the throne in our lives on which we try and occupy and to recognize that Jesus is above all, he is before all. Now, we're going to do communion in a moment. The band's going to come out right now. um, And as they are coming out, I just want to say a couple things to set up communion. We are taking communion today, first off, because how can we read this and not reflect with this? And I don't mean that joke, or like I don't want to diminish any, I, I don't know why I'm saying that, I, we have to do this after reading this, because Jesus, who is above all things and before all things, when, when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating that the one that exists above, that holds everything together, that all creation was through him and for him, willingly humbled himself to a space that could be touched, could be felt, and could be seen. And that's staggering that he would do that. I also want to tell you as we do this, the, the biggest thing that I think we struggle with in the United States, tied to all of this, is we like to think of Jesus as still on the cross. We like, and we don't mean to, but we always come back to Jesus at the foot of the cross and we ask for forgiveness for the wrongs we've done. But the picture in the gospel is not a picture of coming back to the cross. The cross happened... Jesus died for our sins. His blood made peace with us so we could be citizens in the kingdom of God. So we were no longer hostile in mind, no longer alienated, no longer doing evil works. But now we are members of the kingdom here today. And that means when I sin, I need to look to the throne and the king who sits on it. And it may seem like a little thing, but when I look to Jesus on the throne in my moments of weakness, I think a lot differently. When I look to him on the cross, I say, I'm sorry I put you there. And and there's no one there. There's no one there. Because Jesus didn't stay there. He was buried, he rose, and he reigns. And so for us today, we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are following a king who is seated in heaven. And I want to tell you right now as we take communion, you're going to be invited to come up and grab the elements and take them in your seats during this next song but I want to encourage you as you take them. Don't just come up here right away and say, okay, I got to grab these things because this is what we do on a Sunday morning. You know, this is a step I need to take, a performance I need to do. But think and consider the one on the throne first. Don't, don't rush yourself. If you need to sit in here a long time, the band's going to finish, but you don't have to. You can come take communion after. If you're here today and you've never considered Jesus the resurrected King, Lord of your life, and right now you're saying, I believe that, I think that is true, I want to live for that, I'd invite you to come up and take the elements with us. Afterwards, come find me. I'd love to talk with you and hear your story. But don't just come up here and do this because it's what Christians are supposed to do. Think about the one on the throne who's working in us and through us and who by us wants the world to know who he is. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, the image of the invisible God, the first of all creation, we thank you that you who are above every authority, you who did all and who, you who created all and all was created for you, we thank you that you entered this world. We thank you that as we gather right now to take communion, to consider and remember your body shed or your body broken your blood shed we thank you that that is not the present reality you are not a corpse in a tomb you are a king on a throne we thank you that with your resurrection the good news of your kingdom is that it will not be stopped by the greatest threat that the earth could ever do against anyone there is no end to your reign you reign eternal we pray that we would see And reflect on that truth we pray we would not live in anything less than that father i confess that i have been sitting on my own throne this week a whole lot and i pray that you would help me to just live in the truth of your son on that throne i pray for all of us that we would not try and be what we are not but we what we but we would recognize who you are i pray at this time that you would just open our eyes to your matchless name and the matchless name of your son Jesus amen Today, every step you take, you are a living ambassador to the King, the beloved Son of God, who through his death and his resurrection transferred you to the kingdom of life. Do not lose sight of that. Do not think, I can't wait till next week here. I hope you can't wait till next week here. But think about every moment when you leave is a moment and an opportunity. To tell people that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead